Season screamings, everybody. Welcome to Creep Academy. I'm your host, Ghastly Ash, and I hope all of you are done facing down those ravenous last-second shoppers and are settling in with your family today on Christmas Eve. I'm not a huge fan of this holiday, personally. I'm obviously more of a Halloween girl because I really just can't handle how frantic everyone is around this time of year. And it's probably also because it never really feels like Christmas here in L.A. compared to Colorado when I was growing up. But I'm making the most of it and kind of skewed my celebration more towards the creepier side, if you want. Um, I've decorated my tree with Halloween ornaments, spent the last few days kind of binging on Christmas and winter-themed horror films and stuff like that. You know, classics like Gremlins, Silent Night, Deadly Night, and The Shining, and Black Christmas, all that stuff. Uh, not the remake, but uh, not because I have a problem with it, but just because I haven't had the chance to make it out to check it out. So if you have seen that one, let me know what you thought of it in the comment section of the Instagram post today, because I really want to know if it's worth checking out. But while I was poking around and kind of reading about some really horrible things, I kind of found one story in particular that really threw me for a loop, and I thought it would make the perfect tale to add a little bit of paranoia to your Christmas Eve as you gather with your family around your tree. The story is of a man named Ronald Simmons, and Ronald was responsible for the largest family mass murder in Arkansas history during the Christmas week of 1987, and this whole story goes from bad to worse, so buckle up. Ronald Gene Simmons was born on July 15, 1940 in Chicago to Loretta and William Simmons. His father actually had died before he was three years old, and his mother remarried within the year to a civil engineer for the U.S. Army Corps. His stepfather working for the Army obviously meant he had to move from place to place at times, and when his family settled in Little Rock, Ronald didn't really adjust well. He had become kind of jealous of his siblings and was sullen and rude to his mother and stepfather. He was also prone to tantrums, and he got to be just a little bit too much to handle, so his parents enrolled him in a Catholic boarding school for troubled boys. But for reasons I couldn't find anywhere, he was back home within a month. Now, after leaving the Catholic school, he attended Morris Academy until about 1957 when he dropped out to join the U.S. Navy. They had stationed him in Bremerton Naval Base. I believe that's how you say it, Bremerton, I hope, and which is located in New Mexico. And he met his future wife, a USO volunteer from the small town of Walsenburg, Colorado. Yay! Um, her name was Rebecca, or Becky Olbari, and he met her at the United Service Organizations Dance. Ronald and Becky fell in love and got married in 1960, and in 1963, Ronald left the Navy, and a short while later, he joined the Air Force. And he actually became a really highly decorated soldier during that time, so he was, he was really good in this area of his life. And during, but during this time, first few accounts of abuse toward his wife, Becky, they had started to kind of, the rumor mill started to swirl. It sounds a lot to me like it was mainly emotional and verbal abuse, which I'm not downplaying. That's just as bad, sometimes even worse, but that's kind of what the rumors were. And one account stated that he, quote, was often sarcastic and argumentative, especially with Becky, ridiculing her countrified accent in public. Now, look, you guys, as you know, I was born and raised in Colorado, and I have no accent to speak of. I don't think any of us from Colorado do. I have no idea how someone can say we have a countrified accent at all. It's absurd, and I'm sure he was using this as a way to shoot her down 
and to kind of just chip away at her already low self-esteem and it's fucking gross. But anyway, despite his general controlling and abusive shittiness, (laughs) my word, over the course of 18 years of marriage, Ronald and Becky had seven children, three sons and four daughters. And these kids included his quote-unquote favorite daughter, Sheila, whom he referred to as his little princess and ladybug. He showered her with a lot of gifts and attention and always featured her pretty prominently in the pictures he liked to take, which is about to get creepy fast because in the summer of 1980, Ronald and Sheila ventured out on a road trip together. And unfortunately, during this trip, Ronald raped Sheila for the first time. Now, Sheila, when she got home, was understandably really distraught and she withdrew into herself and she tried to hide the fact that she was pregnant. She found out she was pregnant from her father and she hid it really until her belly was big enough and that she couldn't hide it anymore, obviously. And on the day of Sheila's senior prom of all days, Ronald finally told his wife, Becky, and their two oldest children, Jean Jr. and Billy, that Sheila was pregnant with his child. Now, from the research that I did, it was stated that he was really excited about this when he told them, which is absolutely fucking creepy. But how his wife and older kids could possibly have stuck around after this announcement, I have no idea. It makes my stomach turn to even just read about it. And obviously abusers screw with your mind, especially mental and emotional abusers, so much that you don't think you can leave. But it's so disturbing and I I can't even comprehend. But In April of 1981, Cloudcroft Department of Human Services, located in New Mexico, for those of you who don't know, approached Ronald with allegations of incest resulting in pregnancy. This looming indictment spurred Ronald to flee with his family back to Arkansas in the middle of the night to try and outrun the charges, which unfortunately worked because records in the 12th New Mexico Judicial District show that Ronald was charged with three counts of incest on August 11th, 1981 but the charges were conditionally dismissed on August 10th, 1982, so a year later, and the district attorney filed a formal entry that no further effort would be made to prosecute the case because Ronald could not be found. But it specified that the charges could be refiled if he were located. So basically, don't charge him unless you can find him. The dismissal that the district attorney's office had had announced made sure that the conditions meant that the arrest warrant was canceled. So granted, I wasn't really born yet during this time period, but it's not like the country really was in the 1700s. The United States was, it's 1982. Like how the fuck can something as horrific as an incest charge with a daughter that's pregnant with her father's kid get dismissed and just shrugged off because supposedly the police couldn't be bothered to track down where this man went. It's gross. And I can't think of one instance where that even makes sense to me. But now back in Arkansas, the family took up residence on a 13-acre tract of land that would be known as Mockingbird Hill. He came up with that, that name. It was all his idea. And the house that they lived in was constructed of two older model mobile, mobile homes. So he had joined them together to form one larger home. And it was surrounded by a makeshift cinder block privacy fence which he also made the kids build. You'll find that a common theme here. And the fence was as high as 10 feet tall in some places and topped with barbed wire. 
So he's kind of off his rocker already at this point. And I'm sure you guys know by listening to or watching and reading other true crime types of things, you guys all know that this kind of isolation is par for the course for men like Ronald to end up murdering people because they just need power. They just like to separate their victims from the general public. This incestuous relationship with his daughter unfortunately continued during this time. So getting charged with incest back in New Mexico really did not sway that situation whatsoever. And unfortunately, Sheila again became pregnant in 1983 with her father's child. But this time, Ronald allowed her to get an abortion. And shortly after, she sort of rightfully began falling away from his grip. And she ended up falling in love with and marrying a man named Dennis McNulty, really close to these time periods. So this, and along with the fact that his family, including his wife, were starting to speak out against his rule in the house and standing up for themselves, was the start of his even worse decline. Now, I think that it's worth noting that his weirdness and controllingness was noticed by the community, by his wife's family and things like that. And he really wasn't liked just because of his disposition. He was odd. But there was one alternative press entry that I, during my research that I found really interesting, the way that they described him. This said, quote, the home of accused mass murderer Ronald Gene Simmons had things that were there but not really there, like a telephone that wasn't connected, heating and air conditioning system but didn't work, like a bathroom, the lavatory worked but the toilet didn't, police neighbors and relatives speak that way about Simmons' relationships with his wife and children, there but not really working, end quote. So you can kind of see that he liked to put a lot of effort into the image that things were okay from the outside. I mean, obviously not too okay since they have a 10-foot wall with barbed wire on the outside and weren't really allowed to talk to strangers by all accounts. But he tried to make an effort for it to seem like he and his family, they were a unit. You know what I mean? So during this time, Ronald was working a string of kind of low-paying jobs because he had retired from the military. And he was working in the Russellville, the Sinclair Mini Mart, little gas station, and um, an, as an accounts receivable clerk at the Woodline Motor Freight, which he quit in December, um, December 18th to be specific, which is kind of important, after numerous reports of inappropriate sexual advances toward co-worker 24-year-old Kathy Kendrick. Now remember that name because it will be important later. Um, she had reported the harassment to their boss, Joyce Butts. Now, by my research, it kind of seemed that Ronald really wasn't used to taking orders from women. Um, I guess the military kind of at the time had conditioned him to only take orders from men or he saw women as lower than himself. I'm sure both in a way. But once Joyce approached him about the harassment, basically he told her to take this job and shove it and he quit. He wasn't even fired for it. He just quit. So this situation kind of mixed with everything that was going on with his family dynamic kind of added up in his mind as evidence that his life was kind of spiraling out of control. So on December 22nd, 1987, Ronald saw Loretta, Eddie, Marianne, and Rebecca, his three children, off to school while his wife and oldest son were sleeping. Although he already owned three other guns, he went to Walmart, bought a 22 caliber revolver, 
and returned home. The house on Mockingbird Lane, quote-unquote, was decorated for the holidays with a gaily trimmed tree, cards, and other decorations for the season. Ronald plugged in the Christmas tree lights, turned on the television, and then, with a crowbar in one hand and his 22 caliber gun in the other, he began the systematic slaughter of his family. Going to Gene Jr.'s room, he hit his son in the head and shoulders with the crowbar, but Gene Jr. jumped up and tried to fight back, of course, naturally, so his father shot him once in the chest, four times in the head and face. Becky, his wife, heard the shots from her bedroom across the hall, and when Ronald approached, he bludgeoned her and shot her as well. He then moved to another room where his three-year-old granddaughter Barbara was sleeping and by strangulation killed her and dumped all three bodies into a cesspit that he had made his children dig earlier in the month under the guise of it being an extra outhouse because remember, they don't have plumbing. So after all of this was done, after he had slaughtered those three, he sat and waited for his other children to return home from school. Imagine, you guys. (laughs) When they returned, he told them that he had presents for them, but he wanted to, quote-unquote, give them their surprises one at a time. First to receive her gift was his daughter, who was 17-year-old Loretta, whom he strangled and held underwater in a rain barrel. The three other children, Eddie, Marianne, and little Becky, were killed the same way. Around midday on the 24th of December, so Christmas Eve, the remaining members of the family arrived for their Christmas visit. The first to be killed was Ronald's son, Billy, and his wife, Renata. Both were shot on the spot, while their son, Ronald's grandson, Trey, was strangled and drowned. Shortly after this, his princess, daughter, Sheila, and her husband, Dennis, arrived, and they were also both shot dead. Now, Sylvia Gale, the daughter that was born of incest between Ronald and Sheila, was strangled with a wire, and his grandson, Michael, was also killed and strangled. These were all little babies, so remember, they they were very young. And Ronald then afterwards laid the bodies of his family in neat rows in the living room, and he covered the corpses with coats, except, of course, for that of his daughter, Sheila, who he covered in his wife, Becky's best tablecloth. So even in death, he was fucking creepy to her. It's so weird. The bodies of the two grandsons, the two little ones, he wrapped them in plastic sheeting and left them in the trunk of two abandoned cars at the end of their lane. And after the murders, you would think that, I don't know, maybe he would, I don't know. I really don't know what I would have assumed he would have done, but he went for a drink at his local bar and then returned to the home, obviously completely ignoring the corpses that he'd lined up around him, and he spent the rest of the evening and the following days drinking beer and watching television. So after spending those few creepy days with his dead relatives who he had murdered brutally, on the morning of December 28th, 1987, Ronald decided to expand his mission to kill all the people he thought had wronged him. He went to Peel Law Firm where Kathy Kendrick was working as a receptionist. Now remember, I told you to remember that name. (laughs) This is the same Kathy that had reported him for sexual harassment only a couple weeks prior. So he walked into this law firm and he shot and killed her. And right after he left, went to the oil company office where he shot dead J.D. Chaffin and wounded the owner, Rusty Taylor, and drove to his Sinclair Mini Mart where he worked previously, shooting and wounding two more people. After that, his last stop was Woodline Motor Freight Company. Ronald located his former supervisor, Joyce Butts, the woman he had trouble with taking orders from, and shot her in the head and in the chest. She lived, surprisingly, but he then held worker Vicki Johnson at gunpoint and advised her to phone the police. While she was calling the police, he had told her, or is reported to have told her, that he, quote, I've come to do what I wanted to do. It's all over now. 
I've gotten everybody who wanted to hurt me, end quote. He then surrendered to the Russellville police when they arrived. After his arrest, they took him to an Arkansas mental health facility to make sure that he was competent to stand trial. And I don't know, probably try to build the case that he was insane like they always try to do. But they found that he was competent to stand trial. And all in all, he was charged with 16 counts of murder, found guilty, and sentenced to death. Now, (laughs) during one portion of the hearing, he apparently lashed out at his lawyer because of a specific piece of evidence that they had allowed into, into the court. And he punched him in the face and reached for a deputy's gun. He was then let out in chains, obviously. So this guy was just batshit crazy all around. But he had refused his rights to appeal his death sentence, stating, quote, To those who oppose the death penalty in my particular case, anything short of death would be cruel, unusual punishment. Well, at least he admitted it. And on May 31st, 1990, Arkansas Governor, or later President, Bill Clinton signed Ronald's execution warrant. And on June 25th, he died by lethal injection. Whew, guys, talk about needing to take a minute for all of that to sink in. As a recap, this guy killed 14 of his own family members, most of them his own kids, and then two of his co-workers or ex-co-workers, all because they basically weren't bending to his will and he just snapped one Christmas. It is beyond insane and perfect for a Christmas time scary story, right? <laughs> uh, I was just kind of floored by the brutality of this case while I was reading it all for the first time. And just not only the fact that he sat and waited with all the members of his family that were dead, but that he sat and waited for them to arrive so that he could murder him. And the fact that they were children, a lot of them, makes it just that much worse. I, I just, just thinking about my family, I can't really even imagine some crazy shit like that happening. But it happens often, it seems, um, because he was not the only one who went on a murder rampage during Christmas, let me tell you, during my research. So I hope you guys all enjoyed hearing about that as, as much as hearing about murder can possibly be enjoyable. And most importantly, I hope all of you have a much better Christmas than the people in this story. And make sure you let me know what you thought of the episode in the comment section of Instagram on Creep Academy Cast. I'll see you all next time.